I V M. This cave temple, a benefaction, has been constructed on the summit of Sri Rashmi by the great Queen Gautami, the presiding genius of power, acting in every way as befits the title of a daughter of royal sages and the mother of Satyakarni Gautami Putra, the king of kings. The sun rises and glitters off the yellow ochre of the hills of the Deccan, near the modern city of Nashik, barely a hundred miles inland from the sleet grey waters of the Arabian Sea. It pools in the elegant verandas of caves carved into the soft rock, and soft shadows caress the calm, benevolent faces of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who have been sitting here. tranquil and still for almost 2000 years it inches into the heart of the mountain and shines off inscriptions of long dead kings and queens merchants and bankers who mutely proclaim their wealth and devotion to the countless generations that will come after but not all these kings and queens were native to the deccan even 2000 years ago The Deccan was the crossroads of the world and people came to it from east and west intermingling with its people and reaching its earliest cities and empires the caves of Nashik in all their glory trace out among many others the history of two families whose dramatic conflicts shaped the early history of India south and west and through that the early history of the Indian subcontinent On one of these caves was carved the inscription that you just heard the inscription of Queen Gautami Queen Gautami has much to say about the glories of her son and her own generosity but maybe she cannot tell you why his conquest mattered at all to you and how they contribute to the lives we now lead So let me tell you the story of the dynasties of the Satavahanas the Deccanese who battled North Indians Indo-Scythians Indo-Greeks and Indo-Parthians and in the process created a pattern of interaction and innovation that lasted for millennia I am Anirudh Kanesati and welcome to Echoes Like with characters in many other episodes of this season The Satavahanas only emerged onto the historical stage after the collapse of Mauryan control in the frontiers of its empire. So when Ashoka disappears from the scene in the 3rd century BCE, local powers reappear. Across the plateau of the Deccan, cities were starting to be built and lands were being tilled. Minor chieftains were beginning to call themselves kings and war with each other for supremacy. The dynasty that managed to capitalize on the chaos and eventually come out on top were led by a gentleman called Simukha and his son Satakarni eventually managed to stabilize the situation enough that their dynasty the Satavahanas were without question the greatest power in the western Deccan of course to give the Satavahanas credit for all this is to take away credit from their many willing allies and the deeper older processes of urbanization in the Deccan we know that cities from this time were built on hills with thick mud walls pointing to severe conflict and competition the satavahanas were smart enough 
to see that they couldn't wing it alone and married into two allied tribes the rathikas and the bhojas who of course let their success go straight to their heads and immediately declared themselves to be maharathis and mahabhojas ruling as almost independent subkings of the satavahana king of kings it's a striking parallel to the indo-scythians who also had a king of kings tied by politics and marriage to subkings and satraps what's really interesting about these marriages though is that the satavahana queens retained their identity it's a norm in many contemporary indian marriages that the newlywed wife leaves her family and becomes part of her husband's her identity as part of her birth family is in a sense subordinated to the one that she marries into and her sons and daughters take on the last name of their father the satavahanas though did something very different the sons of kings took on not their father's name but their mothers this could be because their mothers came from such wealthy and powerful families but it's equally likely that that was just how inheritance worked in the deccan at this time it wasn't just patrilineal but also matrilineal which is why queen gautami who started this episode is justifiably proud of her son gautami putra satakarni the satakarni who is the son of gautami his might is equal to that of the mountains himalaya meru and mandara he whose orders are obeyed by the circle of all kings he whose pure face resembles the lotus blown open by the rays of the sun whose beasts of burden have drunk the water of the three seas whose fearless hand is wetted by the water poured in granting asylums who serves his living mother his feet are adored by the whole circle of kings and he has stemmed the confusion of the forecasts he the only supporter of brahmans has brought prosperity to his race the great queen the mother of the great king and the grandmother of the great king gives this cave to the congregation the host of mendicants of the buddhist school the queen retained her ties to her family she retained her wealth she retained much independence and gave freely to many monasteries not just the one on tri rashmi and she's not the only satavahana queen to do that by the turn of the first millennium ce roman ships were beginning to arrive along india's west coast sniffing for trade opportunities the satavahanas as i said were just the biggest bully in the schoolyard dozens upon dozens of newly emerged city states vied for the wealth that trade could bring and new routes were being explored and built merchants brought the produce of the rich black soils and thriving new cities of the deccan by bullock cart to the western ghats there they hired pack animals and hiked up the steep hills and on the peaks smelling the salt of the arabian sea taking in the spectacular views they would have rested in caves sponsored by royal advertisers such as queen mother gautami's predecessor by a generation or two queen mother nayanika which is probably a sanskritized form of the much more southern sounding name nagannika queen nayanika appears in carvings with her husband king satakarni and their sons strangely 
also making an appearance is her father, the Maharathi Trinakaira. Adoration to Dharma, adoration to Indra, adoration to Samkarshana and Vasudeva, and to the four guardians of the world. This is given by the wife of the king, the brave hero whose rule is unopposed, the lord of the Deccan, by she who is the daughter of the Maharathi, the increaser of the Amgiya race, the first hero of the earth that is girdled by the ocean and the best of the mountains. It wasn't just important for Satavahanas to advertise their generosity, but also to advertise their ties to their supposed vassals. Perhaps their power structures were more horizontal and flat than later historians tried to make them seem. Plus, we also see that they too, like the Indo-Greeks, worshipped Samkarshana and Vasudeva, the hero gods. If you've been paying attention, you may be wondering why Gautami, who is donating a cave to the Buddhist congregation, is bragging about her son protecting Brahmins and preventing castes from intermixing. After all, Brahmins and castes are something traditionally considered Hindu, right? Sort of, but that's not really how ancient Indians saw religion. Royal families were expected to patronize those that gave them power. In the case of the Satavahanas, they established their primacy over the other ambitious powers of the Deccan by paying for grand overblown sacrifices and royal rituals meant to show off their prestige and power. Queen Nayanika, for example, announces that A Gavamayana sacrifice was offered, a donation was given of 1,101 cows. An Angirasamayana sacrifice was offered, a donation was given of 1,101 cows. A Satatirata sacrifice was offered, the donation consisted of 1,100 cups. In fact, Nayanika goes into such detail about all the sacrifices she offered and what she spent on them that her inscription is an important part of the history of number systems. Performing public rituals was part of the duty of the king, as was respecting those who conducted the sacrifice, the Brahmins. Another official duty was preventing the intermixing of the castes. Though, as we've seen, the Satavahanas didn't really rule over a centralized totalitarian state, so they're really just showing off and pretending to have done it in their advertisements. It's important to note, though, that the idea of ordering a society by caste was clearly becoming accepted, at least by elites, in the Deccan as well, spreading beyond North India where the idea had originated. The consequences of that will become apparent in later episodes. Another part of the king's job description was donating to ascetics and monks, which, as we've seen, Gautami does. The private business of salvation and moksha and personal belief and all that was done in the king's private time. Little evidence of that survives, so we can't say for sure that the Satavahanas were Hindus because they performed sacrifices or Buddhists because they built monasteries. Anyway, it's not like the Satavahanas care what religious label we apply to them. To them, like every other Indian king, religion was a tool of politics and statecraft. Let's think a bit about why Gautami and Nayanika are saying the things that they're saying. There's a spin here. Like the advertisements of modern governments, the inscriptions of these royal ladies are drawing on ancient spiritual and normative legacies to tell their subjects, look how ideal we are, 
we deserve to be royal we deserve to have our commands obeyed at this early time in the history of the deccan states we already have women shaping the discourse of what a state should be and what the role of women should be in such a state what we're seeing is no less than the creation of a new ruling class not just the satavahana royal family but all the families that the queens came from as well the kings and subkings went around conquering and making people pay tax but the queens did the things that ensured their conquests and taxes had popular support which is not to say of course that the satavahanas had an easy time of it their hold over the western deccan and its wealthy trade was soon challenged in the last episode we heard the jain story of kalaka the teacher who asked a shaka king for help in rescuing his sister which may be a metaphorical tale that the shakas later devised what is important though is that it ends with the shakas arriving from shakastan to gujarat these shakas were practically independent of the main shaka kingdom in gandhara and mathura and thus proudly declared themselves to be independent satraps or maha akshatrapas with their own coins and goals and one goal it seems was bumping off the satavahanas why were the shakas so hell bent on doing that their primary port brigukacha which is modern baroch in gujarat was difficult to access thanks to its geographical location however ports further to the south were much more easily accessible to merchants though local rulers only allowed foreign merchants to dock at specific areas where they would compete to offer better services in these spaces and thus gain more control over trade indian goods were often sold at almost 100 times their original price in the roman empire and so competition for trade was absolutely ruthless and so the shakas had every incentive to make the daring move of taking on the deccan's foremost part head on hoping that the gamble would help divert more trade to their ports for the space of a few decades they did wonderfully at this task at the mountain thrirashmi where gautami would later declare her son's glory the shaka ruler nahapana and his son-in-law rishabhadatta boasted of the donations that they made to the buddhists i call them shakas but really their names prove that they were almost completely indianized by this point the shakas of gujarat started off using the kharoshthi script of india's northwest but within a few generations they'd forgotten how to read it and use brahmi script instead and as we can see like every other ruler in the indian subcontinent they use religion to bolster their legitimacy and right to rule as always in india the balance of power didn't remain for long soon the satavahanas under gautami's son were on the offensive he has quelled the boast and pride of kshatriyas and is the destroyer of the shakas the yavanas and the pallavas and has established the glory of the family of the satavahana satavahana revenge was sweet gautami putra satakarni seized most of nahapana's treasury and stamped his own face and titles onto his coins the immense wealth and territory that he suddenly gained possession of fueled much more state expenditure into monasteries and stupas and sacrifices generating consumption and wealth and it seems 
that some of it must have fueled more military expeditions. Because Gautami's son, it seems, attacked not only the Shakas, but also paid a visit to the fragmented, thriving, competing states of North India. The Satavahanas were clearly interested in the politics of the North and not just their own backyard, as Gautami's inscription shows. We also need to remember that just because the Shakas came after the Yavanas and the Pallavas came after the Shakas, it's not like they wiped out those who came before. There was plenty of overlap, and there would have been islands of power of some ethnicities who would have ruled over a mixed population who would have spoken Indian languages and conceived a power in Indian terms. In turn, they would have paid tribute to a ruler of some other ethnicity who, too, sought approval from his subjects within this gradually emerging cultural framework of the land now called India. Here, all these distinct voices competed, co-evolved and fused in their conflicts and their glories, in their boasts and their silence, echo the earliest ideas of Indianness, the ideas that live within us today. If you liked Echoes of India, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not follow us on Twitter and Instagram at IVM Podcasts. And if you have questions or comments on Echoes, I'm at A. Kanisati on Twitter and at Aniruddha Devaraya on Instagram. <laughs>